Well, thank you and good morning. It's a delight to be with you this Lord's Day to get to worship together and to experience Bellevue Baptist Church last night and twice this morning. Just such a special place. I do want to bring you a word of greeting from Midwestern Seminary. We're in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, one of six Southern Baptist seminaries that you as a Southern Baptist <coughs> church and a Southern Baptist that you own. And so thank you for that. Thank you for your stewardship to us through the cooperative program and through sending us students to train for the next generation for the church. You know, we are blessed as Southern Baptists. We have six seminaries. Uh, every professor in every seminary believes the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Every professor believes that the gospel is the only hope for salvation and that men and women, boys and girls, must repent of their sins and believe in Jesus to be saved. And every professor believes that the Great Commission is for us to go to the nations, to reach the world for Christ. And so we are privileged to partner with you to these ends, and we're grateful for the stewardship that we enjoy on your behalf. I am blessed to be here today. My wife Karen is with me. We have five young children that are with us in Kansas City, but not here today. They were all able to join us a few years ago when I preached in the summer here, and uh, what a special place this is. Your pastor, Steve, and Miss Donna, not that you need me to tell you, but what a special couple they are. Their love for the Lord, their love for this church, uh, their givenness to people in ministry, and they're just pre-commitment to minister to God's people and to go about encouraging others from the Word and in the Lord. So here we are, Labor Day weekend, together as God's people here, and we come this morning to hear from the Lord. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We shall look together in chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. The title of the message is, An Upward Look in Downward Times. An Upward Look in in downward times. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. The Word of God says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, 
Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we confess our need of you, our need to hear from you, indeed our need to encounter you today. And Father, we pray you would give us the ability to enter into this passage and and to see and feel the drama that is here, to experience, as Isaiah experienced, a fresh view of you, and to change our lives through it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We enter this passage this morning together, and it's an interesting time in the life of God's people. There is uncertainty in the air. There's even anxiety in the air. And the prophet of God needs a word from God for the people of God. The verse begins, verse 1 begins by telling us that in the year of King Uzziah's death, as this is written, uh, King Uzziah died in about 739 B.C. Uzziah was put on the throne at the age of 16 and he reigned for about 52 years. He was loved, he was, he was cherished, he was valued, and he was, he was God's leader for God's people, but he did not age well. At the end of his life, he became filled with pride, and he, he burst into the temple, into the area restricted for the priests, and, and God judged him for his pride and his insolence, and he was stricken with leprosy, and he wound up dying. Nonetheless, the leader is gone. The throne is empty. There's political uncertainty amongst God's people. What is our future? What is more, there is external uncertainty, geopolitical uncertainty. The the Assyrians are rumbling. They are making noise, and in just a period of a few years, that they would actually come and subdue God's people, and and they are aware of this threat. They are aware of this external challenge, and that has added an, an increasing sense of unease. What is more, there is a, a spiritual coldness and a, a spiritual moral decadence that's taking place in the land, and the people of God are concerned, and the prophet of God sees it, and his heart is broken. In fact, let your eye fall along with me in, uh, in chapter 5. Notice verse 8 where Isaiah begins to embark upon a list of rebukes for the people. We see a string of woes, the statement of judgment, the statement of condemnation that the prophet begins to declare upon society. Notice verse 8. He condemns the materialist. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field. Woe to those who are accumulating houses and accumulating property. Woe to the materialists. Verse 11, woe to the drunkards. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant in mixing strong drink condemnation to those who live a life of intoxication. Verse 18, this this woe, this word of condemnation to the moral hedonists. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart robes. In other words, those who drag along with them the sins of the day and the pleasures of the day. Notice verse 20, the moral relativist. Isaiah condemns 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 21, the proud. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. There is a sense of crisis in the air. It doesn't take a lot of sanctified imagination to get from 739 B.C. to 2020 A.D., does it? It doesn't take a lot of, it doesn't take much of a stretch to get from 739 B.C. to Labor Day weekend in 2020. In our own nation and amongst God's people and in our land, we are in a season of political uncertainty. This is an election year, an election season, and we're inundated with campaign ads and, 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 and accusations and recriminations and all the, the political acrimony that's taking place. There's uncertainty. Who will our next president be? And what will the composition of the next Senate and House look like? And who will mark judicial appointments? And all these things we see that, that make us additionally tense this fall. There's, there's broader uncertainty. There's economic uncertainty. We're all living in this, in this recession that came out of nowhere this spring. It has upended the financial landscape in America. And some of you in the room today perhaps are unemployed or are, are, are fearful of being unemployed. And there's economic uncertainty in your life and in your home. What is more, we are experiencing this medical uncertainty, this public health crisis, this, this coronavirus, and, and many of you in the room perhaps have friends or loved ones who had it, and many of you in the room are fearful of getting it, and underlying health conditions that could exasperate it, so it brings this, this additional anxiety into your life. And then, of course, like Isaiah chapter 5, my goodness, we live in a land and in a country that we have trouble recognizing. We love our country, but we don't recognize so much of what we see. We live in an age where materialism is on the march, and people are seeking to satisfy a God-shaped void in their life by, by adding wealth and adding stuff and adding material gain. We live in an age with, with, with tremendous substance abuse, whether it's alcohol or drugs or other things, and, 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 and prescription medication, and the things that have went into it to, to, to make us in a, in a land that's marked by abuse. Of course, the gods of pleasure are on the march as well, right? The sexual revolution is before us, and there are no absolutes except for the fact that we cannot have any absolutes, so it seems. Hedonism is there, then moral relativism is there. We're experts at calling good evil and evil good, substituting darkness for light and light for darkness, and everything that we took and we believe as biblical norms of sexuality and gender and marriage. Our culture revolts at that and turns it upside down and inside out. Then, of course, we're a nation of pride or people who are proud. But it's not just those things. If we are honest with ourselves and we look around and we look inward, we see not just national challenges, not just social challenges, but we see challenges amongst the people of God. In our Southern Baptist context and more broadly in evangelicalism, churches so often are marked by apathy and indifference. Onlookers have trouble distinguishing between the way of life of Christians and the way of life of people in the world. 
We seem to have lost our sense of dependence on God. We seem to have lost our zeal for evangelism. We seem to have lost our pursuit of spiritual renewal and revival. We're distracted, consumed with other things, and then we are puzzled why God doesn't seem eager to bless our ministry efforts. So brothers and sisters, on the front end of this passage, we have to say we resemble Isaiah 5. We resemble Isaiah 6 as far as the broader social and and spiritual context. And we need an encounter with the Lord like Isaiah had. Amen? See with me first in this passage. See with me Isaiah's upward vision of God. Isaiah's upward vision of God. Notice verse 1, and we see this really through verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Isaiah's upward vision of the Lord. Notice verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. Now, in your Bibles, as you're reading you in the Old Testament, you often will see the word Lord spelled, as you see it here in verse 1, capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. And that is a reference to uh, the, or word, or the word Adonai, referring to uh, the title or the position of the Lord. It means king or ruler. Other places, you will see it capital L, uh, capital O, capital R, capital D, such as in verse 5. And that reference there is to the actual, the actual name Yahweh of the Lord, the actual name of the Lord. So here's the title. There is the name. And verse 1, Isaiah, I don't think this is accidental or coincidental. He is saying in the year of King Uzziah's death, I, I received this vision, how we aren't told, but he clearly gets a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. And what does he see? He sees the king on his throne. He sees the throne of the cosmos, not empty, but occupied. Though there's political uncertainty amongst God's people, the heavenly throne is occupied. And though there's political uncertainty in America right now as we are in election season, Jesus is on his throne. And brothers and sisters, whatever happens this election, let us take comfort that the Lord rules and the Lord reigns. Should we pray for the election? You bet. Should we vote? Absolutely. Should we seek to be informed voters? Surely. Should we even encourage our neighbors to vote along the lines of biblical values? Very much so. But what should eclipse all of human electioneering and political machinations, what should eclipse that is a settled confidence amongst God's people that heaven's throne is fully occupied. So Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne. Who does he see on this throne? John 12 reminds us, teaches us that this is a pre-incarnate view of Jesus. Now, wait a minute. I thought Jesus came in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Is Jesus in the Old Testament? You bet your socks he's in the Old Testament. We see the Messiah. We see the Son of God. We see him throughout the Old Testament, alluded to, foreshadowed, typologically, uh, in many, many different ways. We see explicit references, explicit occurrences where where the pre-incarnate Lord shows up. What Isaiah is getting is a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord of Jesus sitting on a throne, lawfully and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the, th- the temple. Everything about verse 1 communicates majesty, communicates regalty. Isaiah sees the throne room, 
Jesus, King Jesus, is on a throne. He's exalted, lifted up, the train of his robe flowing throughout the temple. The train of the robe, a sign of one's stature, of one's status. Perhaps you've been to weddings before and the bride, came, the bride comes down in the bridal dress, and, and perhaps that, that bridal train was particularly long. And you know, the length of the train often communicates something about the formality of the occasion and, and the grandness of the dress itself and the grandness of the day. My wife is with me. Uh, we've been married just over 21 years now. We're married down in Mobile, Alabama, just down the road at Dalton Way Baptist Church. And uh, we are from Mobile. We grew up on the, on the Gulf Coast there. And so her, her bridal dress is just this beautiful wedding dress. And, and we have in, uh, in my office, I have in my office at the seminary above the fireplace, central in the office there, a beautiful picture of my wife and her bridal dress. And it's taken there on Mobile Bay. And it's just a, a beautiful view of the train. And it's this beautiful picture that really anchors my office. And I'm always am, amused by people who come in and, and are struck by the picture. And they say, that's a beautiful picture. Is that your wife? No, like, it's somebody else's wife in my office. It's my first wife. It's my high school girl. Of course it's my wife. Who else would I have pictured in my office but my fireplace front and center? But you know the sign of, of the train. Isaiah sees the train of the robe and nothing else compares to it. The grandest occasion be it a coronation ceremony, we might see in a context of monarchy, or the biggest wedding of the decade here. Isaiah sees this train. The robe fills the temple. Verse 2, seraphim stood above him. Seraphim, only referenced here in our Bibles, this particular angelic being, that, that their job description is, their, is relatively straightforward, as we will see. And it's not just a do, job description. It, it evidently is an avocation, a calling, a love. Standing above him and each having six wings, and notice the function, with two he flew. So these seraphim are, are floating or flying around the throne room and, 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 and flying. There's an activity there taking place, a, a, a continued movement there taking place. And with, with two wings, they covered his face. Why? Because the one in their presence is altogether holy, as we shall see, and they're incapable of looking into, looking at the one in whose presence they're in. And they cover their face, not so as not to be consumed. And with two wings, they cover their feet. Why? Because feet were, were a sign of, of, of filth in the, in the ancient world and, and walking barefooted with sandals and, and stepping in dirt and walking in streets without modern sanitation and all the rest, your imagination can run there. Feet were dirty. And so with two wings, the feet are covered. With two wings, the face are covered. And with two wings, they fly. And notice what takes place in verse 3. One called out to another. This, this, this cacophony of praise, back and forth, complimenting each one another, back and forth, back and, back and forth, calling out one another, saying, holy, holy, holy. And then again, holy, 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 back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, holy, holy, holy. You know, throughout Scripture we see only here this reference to the superlative. We see in Scripture, amen, amen, or verily, verily, but only here we see it taken to the superlative, holy, holier, 
holiest. Holy, holier, holiest. And brothers and sisters, an onlooker into the throne room could accurately draw attention to any of a number of divine attributes. It's accurate to declare that the Lord is true, true, true. Or gracious, gracious, gracious. Or love, love, love. But Isaiah is gripped by this foundational attribute, this foundational characteristic of the Lord, and he declares he is holy. He is holy. He is holy. And he's seeing these seraphim shout it, sing it back and forth, holy, holier, holiest, holy, holier, holiest. Brothers and sisters, we need to reclaim a vision of the holiness of the Lord. We are way too casual about sacred things. We are way too comfortable with sacred things. And I will tell you this, and I'm not here to scare you to death this morning. I'm here to encourage you from God's Word. But I will tell you this. The 21st century evangelical church in general has become so flabby, spiritually speaking, so complacent, spiritually speaking, so comfortable, spiritually speaking, that I don't think any of us are in danger of taking the Lord a touch too seriously. I think we've become so casual, so comfortable, we've taken God and kind of shrunking Him and taking the Lord here in verse verse 3 and kind of shrunking Him to make Him palatable to us, to to make Him accessible to us, to make Him to make Him comfortable to us. Someone famously said that uh, God created man in his image, and man has decided to return the favor and create God into an image that we like, kind of like us, but a more giving, charitable version, the divine genie in the bottle, divine Santa Claus, a divine giver of nice gifts, whose main purpose in life is to make your life more comfortable, a little more happier, a little more pleasant, and to grant you fire insurance along the way. Verse 3 and all these verses shatter, shatter that petty nonsense. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Notice verse 3. The whole earth is full of His glory. It flows out that temple It flows well beyond. It flows throughout the earth. In fact, the whole cosmos points to His glory. And again, the grandest room you've ever been in, the grandest setting you've ever toured, the grandest palace you've ever visited, it all ends rather abruptly. I mean, I've been able to tour over the years, traveling a few really special places. I've been to to Buckingham Palace, and I've been able to tour, you know, the, the Habsburg Estates and different places, you know, the Biltmore Mansion, some of these places some of you have toured over the years. And it doesn't matter how grand the room is, they all got a back door. Doesn't matter how grand the palace is, you go out, you're still in a crummy street that looks just like a street in your town. But the glory of the Lord never ends. The beauty of the Lord, it keeps extending. The majesty of the Lord keeps being reflected throughout all creation. That is the Lord. What does it mean to be holy, holy, holy? To be holy simply means to be set apart, a cut above, wholly other than, entirely different. And as we are reminded of that even this morning, it makes the condescension our Lord 
experience for us, coming for us, to live for us, to die for us. All the sweet, more sweet, because we see the great expanse he bridged. Well, notice verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. It's this gripping scene. And brothers and sisters, 10 trillion years ago, what are these seraphim doing? What were they doing then? They were struck by holy, holy, holy. 10 trillion years from now, what will they be saying in his presence and chanting back and forth? Holy, holy, holy. This morning, Labor Day weekend 2020, what is their observation? Holy, holy, holy. And if we could get there and somehow finagle our way into this room and somehow ease up on one of these seraphim and tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, aren't you tired of observing and saying, holy, 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 they would say, are you are you kidding? Can you not see the never-ending holiness of the one on the throne? My friends, we need an upward vision of the Lord. The church needs an upward vision of the Lord. Society needs an upward vision of the Lord. You need an upward vision of the Lord that reframes your perspective of life, that reframes your perspective of self, that reframes your perspective of ministry. We need an upward view of the Lord. Now notice with me in verse 5. And we see, secondly, we see Isaiah's inward vision of himself. Then I said, woe is me. Notice before this encounter, what was Isaiah's prophetic preoccupation? It's those around. War of the drunkards, war of the hedonists, war of the materialists, war of the proud. Woe all the societal ne'er-do-goods. Woe, 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 woe. And hear me this morning, the church does bear the responsibility for a prophetic voice. And it is our concern, it is our responsibility to be able to speak convictionally and willing to speak convictionally when our society or when our town or when our city, when our country is veering away from God's Word and is right to advocate for biblical marriage and biblical life and, and biblical virtues that we see in Scripture. That is good and right, and we do have a prophetic job that we are to do. But if our primary concern ever becomes the sin of those around us more than the sin within ourselves, we are adrift spiritually. And if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes more concerned about rebuking society for their sin as opposed to repenting for their own, the church has become adrift. Notice verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me. I am ruined. This word woe is a statement of condemnation. It's a statement of judgment. I am ruined means I, I am dead. Game up. I'm finished. 
And Isaiah's response is like, like you are too holy to seen this too otherworldly. I am reminded of my own sin, and it's not like I might die or, or this may not play out so well or, or you know, I, I, I sure hope this works out okay. No, it's just I, I'm, I'm torched. I'm done. Now, wait a minute, preacher. Is Isaiah overreacting? Brothers and sisters, this is the common biblical response to an encounter with the Lord. Every now and then, you'll be, you'll be, you may be channel surfing at home, and you're channel surfing, and you, you kind of come across Christian television, and as a reminder, some of the shows or sermons on Christian television aren't that Christian after all, and it might be some type of, uh, you know, kind of nutty televangelist, and he'll talk cavalierly about talking with the Lord, and the Lord showed up, and the Lord came to me in my private jet, and I told the Lord I want a bigger private jet, and he told me I'll give you a bigger private jet, and me and the Lord were just kind of chatting it up, you know, and let me tell you, that is baloney, okay? That is, that is so far-fetched from what we see in Scripture as to make it unrecognizable. John on the island of Patmos, Revelation 1, sees the Lord, boom, falls like a dead man. Peter, Luke 5, similar encounter, boom, falls. Throughout Scripture, Job, Job 42, this unnerving encounter, boom, smitten. Isaiah has that. He sees the Lord and he's stricken. He says, I am ruined. Brothers and sisters, have you come to a point in your life when you've seen the Lord and felt the weight of your own sin? That's what conversion is, friends. Whether you're a child or a teenager, an adult, where there's an encounter and the Spirit convicts you of your sin and you feel the weight of your sin and you feel the emptiness spiritually of that sin and, and you cry out to the Lord in repentance and you experience the sweetness of forgiveness and, and you come to faith in Christ and you believe in Him and your life is changed. But we need periodically, even those of us who've been redeemed, to come to passages like this and be reminded so that we can rightly reprioritize how we live, how we worship, how we serve. And we really need this in September of 2020 for all the aforementioned reasons I've already unpacked. We need it. Notice what takes place in verse 5. Isaiah says, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. The mouth speaks what is in the heart. Moreover, I live amongst a people of unclean lips. We are a corrupt generation. For my eyes have seen the King. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. That glimpse accentuated his own fallenness. That glimpse of the Lord accentuated his sense of his own guilt. Now notice verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. So imagine Isaiah, he's seeing this plays out. He sees a seraphim taking tongues, grabbing a burning coal from the altar. Isaiah's got to be scared spitless. I mean, this is conjecture, but I think it's sanctified conjecture. He sees it. He's scared. The seraphim comes for him. And he comes to him and he touches his mouth with it, but as, as opposed to being incinerated, he's forgiven. As, it so, as opposed to being ruined, 
He's revived. As opposed to being condemned, he's about to be commissioned. The seraphim said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Brothers and sisters, this is a moving scene. An upward view of the Lord brings about an inward view of self. Repentance takes place. Forgiveness takes place. Now notice what happens thirdly. Isaiah's outward view of God's calling. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. There's a direct correlation between the moving of God's Spirit in your life and your willingness to be the type of man or woman who says, Here am I, Lord, send me. And I'm not at this point talking about surrendering to vocational ministry, though there is certainly application to draw from this passage. I'm not even talking about this point, a willingness to take an overseas mission trip with your church, though there is certainly appropriate application like that to draw from this passage. What I'm talking about is a reflexive sort of just natural inclination, natural willingness, natural, natural openness to where you see God working and where you see needs for God's people and God's church. You're just like ready to go. And we've all been in times in ministry and churches, so many of us where we've seen where, where it just seems the church is cold and people indifferent and, you know, vacation Bible school comes around and they need workers and, you know, the pastor begs for three months for people to sign up and they still can't get half the people they need. But then there are times when God's working, the Spirit's working, there's a freshness in the building, there's an anointing on the preaching of the Word of God. And man, you talk about a mission trip, people overflood the sign-up list. Talk about vacation Bible school needing volunteers, you got more adults than kids walking around. Where people have that desire to be on mission with God, sir, where are you in that equation? Ma'am, where are you in that scenario? Have you seen the Lord elevated? Have you seen yourself? And do you now have an, an outward vision of God's call? God didn't save you to sit. He saved you to send you. God didn't call you to rot. He called you to go. God didn't bring you in this place to merely enjoy good preaching and good music. He brought you in this place to bring other people to sit under that preaching and that music. Where is God calling you to go? In Midwestern Seminary, we're pleased to train more than 4,000 pastors and ministers and missionaries for church service. And I challenge them, whatever you do, don't be the type of minister, the type of man or woman who builds a ministry resume and gets a few credentials and a few points in your resume just to have a, a better, more attractive ministry post. Be willing to surrender and go wherever God calls. A few years ago in graduation, I challenged our graduates. I said, don't build a resume, drink a six-pack of Red Bull, toss your resume to the wind, and preach the gospel to anything that moves. I got a letter in the mail the next week from a lady who wrote me rebuking me for encouraging our graduates to drink alcohol. I wrote her back and said, ma'am, Red Bull 
I was very sweet. I said, Red Bull, Red Bull is not a beverage drink, it's a caffeinated drink. But to be the type of person who lives, lives on mission. Is that your life? Has COVID and election and politics and recession and all that just kind of gummed you up to where you're trying to find your way? This is a call to return to first things. I'll say a specific word to you guys here. Perhaps some of you here, you have never repented and believed in Jesus. The one in this passage is holy and he judges. But he is also gracious and eager to forgive. In just a moment, we're going to have a time to respond, and we're going to sing to the Lord. If God has touched your heart, we'd love to receive you and pray with you about following Jesus. Talk with you about joining the church and saying, regardless of COVID, I'm ready to situate myself in a church family where I can grow and serve and be ministered to. Perhaps to pursue baptism, as we saw on the screens earlier, or perhaps to, to, to pursue full-time Christian ministry. Wherever God is touching you, this is a time to respond. This is a time to obey. And I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And when we're done praying, we're going to stand and sing. And if God has called you, you step out and come. We're eager to receive you today. Let's pray together. Father, we bow this morning. And Father, we confess this morning that we all need to be stirred in our affection for you. We need this vision Isaiah had to reframe our understanding of you, to reframe our life's priorities, to reframe how we spend our time and how we spend our money, to help us to worship you, the true, authentic, biblical Jesus, not one of our own imagination. And Father, I pray this morning, especially for those who, as they're honest with themselves, have a need to get right with you. Father, that's what today is about. That's what this invitation is about. And I pray in this moment your spirit would work. Sinners to come to faith in Jesus. Those who've stepped away from him to step towards him and following him more closely. Pursuing you. A willingness to put their life on the altar as Isaiah. Here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, use me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.